Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, and the message entitled, Jesus Commissioned Paul. Paul the Apostle has clearly demonstrated that his apostleship and gospel were independent of man, but completely dependent on Jesus, be it in origin or in transmission. He said that in chapter 1, verse 11 through 12. Paul then moved to further verify the independence of his apostleship and gospel by contrasting the past consternation against the church and his present commission for the church. And he does this from verse 13 to 17. The autobiographical section offers here as proof we state it runs even all the way to the next chapter, um, to chapter 2, verse 14. And so we examine Paul's past consternation against the church as proof that he had nothing to do with his apostolic message of the gospel in our last study in verse 13 through 14, and we finished up with verse 1 and 2. Um, it comprised the incredible repulsion of Paul for Christianity in verse 13. He hated Christians, and so they couldn't blame him that that was an asset towards his apostleship. And then in verse 14, the insatiable passion for, of Paul for Judaism. I mean, he was just surpassed everybody. No one could keep up with him. And then we finished off with verse 1 and 2, the incomparable conversion of Paul, of Christianity. It was all divine, just as it happened to you, as you opened your heart to the Lord, and he did an incredible, incredible work. And so now Paul presents the contrasting evidence for his apostolic commission by God alone, evident by three things here in verse um, 15 to 17. Let me read here our text, 15 through 17. He says, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And so this apostolic commission by God alone is evident by these three things. First, the commission of Paul was according to the sovereignty of God. Verse 15, the sovereignty of God. Secondly, the first half of 16, the commission of Paul was according to the purpose of God. And third and last, the commission of Paul was according to the methods of God. The last part of 16 and 17. Let's begin here with the commission of Paul was according to the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 15. The sovereignty of God stands alone and apart from any human involvement, but when it pleased God. The word but is a contrasting conjunction as we've seen many, many times. It stands in sharp contrast to the previous two verses, verses 13 and 14. The hateful conduct of Paul toward the church was according to his own understanding of Judaism. The passion and zeal of Paul for the tradition of the Father caused him to excel beyond all his contemporaries. So the time of God acting once again was by his sovereignty, by the word when. The word when is a time word expressing a point in time. 
the point in time marking the perfect time according to God. Do you realize God has never been late to anything? <laughs> God's never rushing around like us trying to make catch up on time. The sovereignty of God is one of the natural attributes of God. He has the right to do as he pleases with his creation. God's attribute of sovereignty can be defined as God doing what he pleases, when he pleases, as he pleases, to whom he pleases, wherever and whenever he pleases, as often as he pleases, and as long as he pleases. Because he's perfect and he'll never violate any of his attributes, he can't do wrong. Well, don't you wish you were like that? <laughs> but that makes him God. People often express a desire to live their lives this way without any hindrances to their choices as they live life out, expressing their freedom and choice of expression. But the problem is that self-expression is not sovereignty. God alone has his attribute to perfection. He can make no mistake. When you and I want to express our total liberty and freedom, um, we have a potential to do bad things or to make mistakes or to misuse it, not God. Now, this is being understood in the context of his perfect knowledge, wisdom, and love, not a selfish, uh, cantankerous will to impose his power on others. The non-believer, and maybe you did um, in the world that some non-believers think that God's just up there making people miserable. You know, if God created this whole thing, why does he make us suffer so much? Why does he cause pain? Why is there death? Why is there sickness? And, and they, they miss the key. It's because of Adam, not because of God. But they have to blame somebody. They have to put an excuse or justification why they can't be a Christian or don't want to be a Christian. He has all the information needed. He knows what is best for a person. He has the benefit of man in mind always, never himself. God has never made a choice regarding your life or mine that he gets the best deal. It's always you. He has you in mind. But we must look at it from God's perspective. When we want something so bad and we think that we know better and if we compromise, you must remember that the pain of obedience is nothing compared to the pain of disobedience that oftentimes can last a lifetime. Remember that. He knows what's best for us. The sovereignty of God is directly referred to by the phrase, it pleased God. It's a Hebrewism for divine sovereignty. The word please means to seem good or to think good. The one acting is God. He's omniscient. He knows everything. You know, you first started school, you know, you start learning and come home and you're excited, you're in kindergarten, first grade, you tell your mom, your dad, I did this, I did that. No, God can't learn. He doesn't need to learn. He doesn't have to go to school. He's always been. He wasn't created. 
He just is. All we can understand by that is what we understand by English words. But in terms of comprehending it completely in the eternal aspect, it bypasses us. The word please there also conveys to take pleasure or delight. The pleasure of God is um, in relationship to Paul stands in sharp contrast to Paul's pleasure for persecuting the church. Here's a contrast. The apostle says, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, Colossians 1.19. Everything that's good. Notice still in 15, the sovereignty of God was active and in effect from the womb, don't miss this, who separated me from my mother's womb. Now, this is another Hebrewism for divine sovereignty. The word separate means to mark off from a boundary or line, implying the and emphasizing special purpose, not the birth, but special purpose. The one who separated himself to be a Pharisee fought against God. The one who got separated from in order to do God's work was God. Every person that enters this world, believer or non-believer, when they come forth from the mother's womb, it's God who's bringing them forth. It's God who allows the child to breathe. It's God who allows the child to be formed and uh, come to the nine months to be born. And yet here the word appears ten times in the New Testament. It is used of Paul separated unto the gospel in Romans 1.1. It's used by Jesus for separating the sheep from the goat at the judgment when he comes back in Matthew 25.32. It's used by Luke for separating Barnabas and Saul for the work and the ministry of the Gentiles that the Holy Spirit called him in Acts 13.2. It is used of Peter separating from the Gentiles in Galatians 2. So the context will tell you what that separation is. Clearly here from the womb. This divine call upon his life, as we'll see. This separation from the womb of Paul's mother precedes all of Paul's training as a Jew. Think about it. Before his education at home, before his education at the University of Tarsus, before his education at the feet of Gamaliel, before Paul was born, God knew him and separated him for the work of the gospel. When I was living in Mexico City, the first seven years of my life, God knew he had separated me to be a minister. I had no idea. When I was living in LA, when I was running around in Ballin Park, I didn't know that, but he did. Now, we have to be careful not to think that God forces and he does that, and no matter what's going to happen, it's going to happen. No, no, no. That's Greek determinism. Remember, it's foreknowledge. He knows what's going to happen before it happens. So why would it, he say something's going to happen when he would violate a man's will? He doesn't. So he knows that men and women are going to respond to him. And he enables us. 
And so notice the sovereignty of God called Paul by the grace of God. And call me through his grace. The word call means to call aloud, to invite. The error is active tense indicates action at a point in time in the past. Literally, having called me. The word call is synonymous with election and predestination. Regarding God's purpose, based on his foreknowledge again, 2 Peter 1-2, he predestines according to his foreknowledge. Okay? Okay? Sovereignty doesn't mean that he just chose you without you having to respond. That's not biblical. God always initiates men respond and women respond. He calls those who he knows are going to respond. He doesn't force them to respond. Very important. As regards no merit, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we're saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves the gift of God. And it regards repentance in Romans 10, 8 through 11. As you hear the gospel, you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth, you shall be saved. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. But one thing we should never understand, election or predestination of people apart from the free will of the individual. Otherwise, we accuse God of sending the majority of people to hell without ever having a choice. That's not biblical. And yet it's taught all over the church all the time. Now, notice the call of the Apostle Paul was through the grace of God. Charis, meaning unmerited favor, undeserved. That's how all of us get saved. That's how all of us are enabled to walk with him. The gifts of the Spirit. Everything, grace. Grace identifies a new covenant in contrast to the old covenant of the Judaizers, law. Law gives you a standard and punishes you for the lack of that standard. It accuses you as guilty. Grace has no requirement except repentance to believe in God for what he did for you. Grace rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ, not in the keeping of the law as the Judaizers were teaching. So Paul is against them. They've come into the church. They're corrupting the Christians there at Galatia. Uh, they're saying Paul is a renegade Jew, and, you know, he's just, uh, uh, he's not even a real apostle. The grace of God was the source and origin of Paul's call to be an apostle. Paul's independent, uh, his independent apostleship was, uh, by God, sovereignty. Again, the sovereignty of God, he does he will, as he wills, when he wills, and who he wills as often. But he never violates man's free will, nor any of his attributes, okay? When somebody gives you a doctrine that violates an attribute of God, it's not biblical. It's real simple. And so Paul's independent apostleship is by the grace of God. The grace of God was sufficient to forgive all the crimes of Paul against the church. The grace of God has been enough and sufficient for all the sins you ever committed before coming to Christ and those that you fall short as you acknowledge them, confess them. Making them a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Old things pass away, everything becomes new. 
making him a vessel of honor for the master's use, prepared for every good work, as 1 Timothy 2.21 says. And he does the same with you and with myself. Uh, listen to Moses in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. He says, For you are a holy people of the Lord Yahweh your God. The Lord Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. The Lord Yahweh did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all the people, but because Yahweh loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore unto your father, the Lord Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Because somehow it, it, we'll get to a place where we think, well, you know, God must, I, I must have some worth in me. There's something that's good in me. That's why God chose me. No, not one good thing. This is the human aspect. This is uh, the philosophies of the world, the religions of the world. Um, anthropology, man is good. The psychologist, man is good. Wrong premise. You're going to be and come up with the wrong conclusion. It's impossible. Like clay in the hands of a potter, he makes of it what he pleases. But once again, never against the will. Jeremiah, remember, 18.6 he sent to the potter's house to watch him mold that clay. Now, you and I have been sovereignly separated from our mother's womb for a special purpose, as much as Jeremiah, Samson, John the Baptist, or any of them. They were called to a specific thing. Their specific call is not more important than what you're called to. We're in the kingdom of God. We're in the bride of Christ. We're in the church of Jesus Christ. And he has called us and equipped us to do what he has called us to do. And, you know, sometimes you may think um, something is not that important in your body until you hurt it. Then you realize it's real important. <laughs> and the rest of the body suffers. But we are God's workmanship, Ephesians 2.10 says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, Will I walk in all that God has preferred for me? I'm going to do my best, but I'm not going to walk in everything. I'm not perfect. But I can hit the mark. I can ask God to guide me and direct me through his word, through his spirit, through prayer, to be a light to this dark world, Matthew 5:14, And it's getting darker. To reveal to the world the excellence of the power of God through me, a weak vessel, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He's put this treasure in this earthen vessel that the excellency may be of God, not of ourself. Too much of the church glories in the vessel and has allowed the humanistic concept of self-esteem and of loving yourself first. That's all foreign to the gospel. That's all flesh. Jesus says, when you've done what you are supposed to do. Say, I am an unprofitable servant. Wow. And yet we realize how much he loves us and we deserve nothing. And you look at what God has done in your life. 
If you've been saved for quite a bit of time, then you can compare your life to some of your friends that heard the gospel at the same time and are still there. What has happened to their marriages? How did they raise their children? How are they doing with drugs and alcohol? Faithfulness to their bride or their husband. You see the big difference. What God saves us from is so good. To give an answer to every person for the hope that lies with meekness and fear, 1 Peter 3.15 says. Family members will always ask questions, inquisitive at first, and then they get kind of hostile sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes just to... Um, get back at us, but it's all right, it doesn't matter. We're to give that answer and we pray and let God take care of it and he knows. You and I have been called sovereignly by the grace of God from um, before the foundation of the world. Um, the scriptures teach us that. In Ephesians 1.4 says to be blameless and holy before him in love. Ephesians 1.5, to be sons and daughters of God. And 1.6, to be accepted in the beloved by the glory and to the glory of God. And 111, to be aligned with the purposes of God and his will. And in 2, 8, and 9, by salvation, by grace, through faith. That not of ourselves, it's a gift that he's given to us. And to have room for no boasting, 1 Corinthians 4, 7 again. This is the order for everybody. No one's an exception, not the pastor, not the elder, not the deacon, not the whoever, the regular person. So notice the commission of Paul was according to the sovereignty of God. Secondly, he says, the commission of Paul was according to the purpose of God. Still there in 16, notice the purpose of God first was to convert Paul, to reveal his son in me. The first step by God always is to remove the scales from the sinner's eyes to remove spiritual blindness, because we were blinded by Satan, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Uh, we, we heard, but we didn't see. We heard words, but we didn't understand. The natural man is said to be spiritually blind to the things of God. Matthew 15.14, Jesus told the disciples regarding the Pharisees, let them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the ditch. The only way any person can lead another individual is if the Lord is leading him or her. We are incapable of leading people without exalting ourselves. We are incapable of leading people without lording over people. That's the natural man. The natural man is said to be unable to understand the things of God in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He said, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So you share with your family members or friends, you say, yeah, you know, God created the whole thing. We didn't evolve. So you really believe that. Yeah. He just spoke it into existence out of nothing. Yep. He did it in six days? Yeah. They don't comprehend. They don't understand. Nor should we expect them to. <laughs> but as I'm ministering the gospel to them, I know that God is there to shed light on them if their heart is open. So the condition of the heart will determine the amount of light they are open to. 
The revealer, notice, is the Father, personal pronoun, his, is capitalized, referring to the Father, pointing back to the previous verses, verse 15, the beginning there. The power to reveal divine information is all of God's doing. Man has no part in that. The word reveal, apocalypto, is a verb, and it is God the Father who is acting to reveal this to Paul. The meaning is to unveil, disclose, uncover what is previously hidden and now made known. The infiniverus means the revelation was complete and effective, the Greek scholar Lenski says. And so when the heart is open and the proclamation comes, new birth takes place. Purposeful intent of the Father of revealing was to capacitate Paul to see and understand the spiritual truth about the person of Jesus, but never at the expense of Paul's will. God has never forced anybody into the kingdom of God. God has never forced anybody to believe the gospel. There's always those two things that happen. God initiates and we respond. Now he has foreknowledge. He knows who's going to respond. So of course, if he knows people are going to reject, why will he bother? Well, because people have to be accountable. He has to give opportunity. Even though he knows they're going to reject, he must give that opportunity so when he judges them, they're without excuse. They've had an opportunity to be saved. But God knows all along who's going to be saved and who's not. God has never said, man, I didn't know he was going to be saved. I want to slip right by me. This involves the process of illumination by the Holy Spirit of God. This enables the product of being born again by the Holy Spirit as one's acceptance of the revelation. Maybe you can remember where you were and what you were, even the text maybe, and you certainly remember all of a sudden it was a real truth to you, and you responded to it. And you might have heard it many times before, but that time, or it might have been the first time. Now this indicates the blamelessness of God by making the gospel message comprehensible, leaving man without excuse before God. So if God initiates the gospel and someone doesn't comprehend it, then God would be unjust to judge them on judgment day. When he told Adam, the day you eat, you should surely die, Adam comprehended it. Therefore, the judgment was righteous. When God allows the gospel to go forth, he allows a person to comprehend so that when they stand before God, they have no excuse. They can't justify themselves. They can't excuse themselves. They can't blame anybody else. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For it is the God of a God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
You see, this revelation of the Son was to take place in Paul. The word in there is a preposition indicating not an objective, but a subjective revelation. Personal, life-transforming, not just information, but it just turns your whole life around. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The crucified life. You want to follow me? Deny yourself. Lose sight of yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Every day. Galatians 6.14 says, But God forbid that I should both accept in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. This is what keeps a lot of Christians kind of straddling the fence. They want to live half in the world and half in the church. Can't do that. Never have been able to do that any generation in whatever culture it is. People make choices all the time. And sometimes, especially as young people, you, you haven't been around that long and the world dangles the carrot before your eye and you think, you um, well, I can handle it. I, can, I, can, I know how to... And Satan just devours people who straddle the fence, who compromise. The emphasis here is not on his conversion, but his call to apostleship, evident of what follows the preaching of the gospel. The apostle had clear understanding of his call. When Jesus told Paul, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, trembling, and astonished, and he responded, Lord, what would you want me to do? Acts 9, 5 through 6. He says that later on in the witness to um, Herod and Agrippa in 22, 8 and 26, 15 in Acts. He knew his call. Notice the purpose of God, second, was to commission Paul that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This is always the order of God. First conversion, then commission. The commission of Paul was to preach Jesus among the Gentiles. The word preach is where we get our word to evangelize. It means to bring good tidings to, uh, in the present continuous tense. This is his commission. The word is used throughout the New Testament for the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 23 to 24. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jew a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For if I preach the gospel, Paul said, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel in 1 Corinthians 9, 16. I have no choice. Often people ask me since the pandemic, are you moving? Are you, are you retiring? Well, to me, if I preach not the gospel, where am I going to go? I can't go. Now, if God released me, that's something else, but I'm not going anywhere. I know what God has called me to do. I have a choice, and at the same time, I don't have a choice. 
because I know what he's called me to do. And that's good. The pronoun him is in reference to Jesus Christ here as the long-awaited Messiah, the incarnation of God, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer of mankind. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, he said, For this reason, Paul declared, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God and salvation, for the power of God and salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk 2, 4. Three times that scripture is quoted in the New Testament with three different meanings. The just, right here, Galatians. I'm sorry, Romans. The just shall live by faith. And then shall live here in Galatians. And by faith, Hebrews. Three texts, three different focuses. And so the particular people Paul was commissioned, notice, was among the Gentiles. And it refers to all the nations distinct from Israel. All nine Jews. The Jews believed the Gentiles were created by God simply to kindle the fires of hell. Paul preached Christ through the gospel in his three missionary journeys, as you know. First, always going to the law in the synagogues to reveal Jesus as the Messiah in the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. They had the scriptures. Few believed it. The majority did not. So they always gave him a bad rap. And then secondly, he would go out to the Gentiles without having to observe requirements of the law, a better covenant, the new covenant. But he always went first to the synagogue. Now the Apostle Paul understood this commission from the Damascus Road, as we've mentioned in Acts 9, 6, and verse 15 through 20. Paul, from the beginning, recognized his independent apostolic commission and began to preach the gospel, as you know, without any need of man teaching him or approving of him. Immediately, he says, that he preached the Christ in the synagogue, that he is the Son of God, Acts 9.20. Immediately. Now stop and think about it. He's a Jew. He hates Christians. He doesn't see Messiah anywhere in the Old Testament before Damascus. He gets saved, bam, living color. He's been a student of the Old Testament all his life. He's a scholar. But now it's more than just information. Now it's alive. Paul would be a witness to all men. Paul declared this to the temple crowd in Acts 22, 10 through 16. Any place, anywhere, wherever we got a chance. The Apostle Paul declared it also to King Agrippa in Acts 26, as you remember. In 16 through 19 and 20 to 23, he says, But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people 
as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the regions of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works fitting for repentance. Paul always related his call, his commission, that he had been faithful to it. He knew he was being used as a scapegoat, a political scapegoat. Until they kept frustrating, and he knew that, and he appealed to Caesar. And so the Apostle Paul understood his apostolic commission in Romans eleven thirteen. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. He knew exactly. Many people don't know what to do in life, and so they just wander around from thing to thing. Some Christians, they never seek the Lord to see what would you have me to do, Lord. So they just hop from church to church to see if it strikes them, if it's appealing, or if there's enough programs there, or whatever it may be. You should be here because God has told you to be here, that this is your church. You must know that. I can't tell you that. First Timothy 2, 7 says, For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. I a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. To which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. Second Timothy 1, 11. Those pastoral epistles are to Timothy who he left in Ephesus. He hands the church over to him. You remember God called Cyrus, his shepherd, to perform all his pleasure to conquer Babylon by deflecting the river Euphrates, going under the levee gate that was left open. And then he allowed the Jews to return to Israel. Isaiah 42, Ezra chapter 2. God did that. Cyrus, my anointed, my shepherd. Wow. Before we can be used by God, a person needs to be converted, born again. For that reason, we don't use non-believers in ministry. There's non-believers that come here, they hear the gospel, but we don't use them for ministry. Many churches appeal to those who come to the church that are very wealthy. And so they put them on their board or they give them special privilege so this way they can be big tithers. But they're, they're non-believers. What are you doing? We want people that are born again because they know God, they know the word of God, and we allow God to raise people up in ministry. Everybody on staff worked in the world. Everybody on staff has been raised up from the congregation. 
not from seminaries or anything else. We don't put ads in the paper. <laughs> Being born again to see Jesus for who he is, the Savior and Lord and King and Judge to come. To understand God's word. To be filled with the Spirit of God constantly, Ephesians 5.18. After we're born again, then God desires to commission us to share that good news. Freely you have received, freely give, Jesus said in Matthew 10.8. To impart gifts to each of us for the edifying of the body to accomplish the work of God in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, the gifts. To be obedient to the great commission of Matthew 28, 18, 20, to go out wherever, whether we're out in the grocery store and we don't want to be interrupted and God opens that door and we're able to minister to somebody, uh, whether it be a family member or someone in need or a neighbor who uh, has their son or daughter in the hospital and they ask for prayer or whatever it may be. Every opportunity to send people Romans 10, 15 says, And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Romans 10, 15. Now the world doesn't look at that as good things. The non-believer, if they know you, they think you're wasting your time being here tonight. Here tonight. They think you're wasting your life going to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and midweek, and you're involved, and then you go to missions? Why do you have to go to church so much? <laughs> they don't understand it. Never are we to make any decisions in a form of distinction between Jew and Gentile. Whoever God brings, we preach the gospel to. The majority of churches today, let's just take Pasadena, for the past 10, 15 years, they're focusing upon having a balance of different ethnic groups. So they want to make sure they have enough black people, enough Mexicans, enough uh, Asian, and all of this, because they're, you know, they're the United Nations. Well, we don't do that. We just let God bring people. We preach the gospel. Whoever gets saved, they get saved. Sometimes people ask me through the years, is, is your congregation mostly Mexican or Spanish? I never really think of it. I go, no. It's changed. And through the years, whatever God brings, he saves. And God raises them up. And people that blame Christians of being preferential they're really the preferential ones because they make the church like a business they make the church worldly they treat it just like the world politically correctness it's a shame Romans 10 12 says for there is no distinction between Jew or Greek for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him God has no respect of person. The only thing he looks at is the heart and repentance. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
That doesn't mean that there's not a distinction between male and female. The context is before God for salvation. God doesn't look at all that stuff. He looks at the heart. Colossians 3.11 says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, Scythian, uh, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. And I've told you often, the Scythians were those northern tribal people by uh, Russia there below it, that they would take the captives, decapitate them, boil their um, skulls, and use the, their skulls as drinking goblets, okay? They were getting saved. God forgives that. There is nothing that God does not forgive when there's true repentance. The forgiving of sin is impossible only when a person does not acknowledge their sin and ask forgiveness for it. That's the only thing that keeps a person in their sin. And so the commission of Paul was according to the purpose of God. Look at your life. Aren't you glad what God has called you and commissioned you to? As you serve, as you know exactly what God has called you to be and to do, it makes life real simple. It's not confusing. Notice thirdly here, the commission of Paul was according to the methods of God. At the end of 16 there, the method of God was independent of any human agency. Listen to his words. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. And so Paul refuted any idea of false teaching or imparted to him um, by anyone else or anything else about the gospel prior to Jesus Christ because he's being accused that he's teaching false, that he's not a real apostle. And he refutes it all. Paul received nothing from any man right after the encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. The word um, confer here means to consult or communicate with someone in order to contribute or add something by another. The same word appears one more time in the New Testament and is translated added in reference to the apostles adding anything to Paul in Galatians 2, 6. The phrase flesh and blood is used to indicate a human being. Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, referring to demonic spirits and fallen angels in contrast to human beings in Ephesians 6.12. In Acts 9.9, Paul had uh, traveled with men of flesh and blood to arrest and incarcerate Christians, and when he was blinded by the vision, they led Saul into the city, and none of them spoke to Paul about the gospel or taught him about the gospel in Acts 9.8. Nobody talked to him. Nobody said anything. Paul was in the city of Damascus three days without sight, neither ate or drank in Acts 9.9. Luke and Paul both say Ananias only confirmed what God had shown Paul, laid his hands on him to receive his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he was baptized in water, Acts 9, 17 through 19. He shares it again in 22, 12 through 16. Very, very clear, very detailed. So notice the beginning of 17, the method of God was independent of the apostles in Jerusalem. Very specific. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those apostles before me. 
So the Apostle Paul denies returning right away to Jerusalem after his conversion and commission. The therefore to go, here the reference, identifies the geographical location of Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. The altitude of Jerusalem, some of you have been over there with us, is 2,500 feet above sea level. From wherever location one is, one always goes up to Jerusalem. And when you leave Jerusalem, you go down. So you'll never read anywhere in the scriptures where people say, well, let's go down to Jerusalem. It's always, let's go up to Jerusalem. The location of the temple was in Jerusalem by God's choosing, the place of honor and glory. The Apostle Paul noticed denied specifically of having any contact right away with the Apostle in Jerusalem after his conversion and commission. Paul was confirming what he had told him about his apostleship, that it was not from man, but from God. He said that in chapter 1, verse 1. He's repeating it again. Paul was confirming what he also told him about the gospel, that it was not from man, but from God himself, verse 11 and 12. And Paul was affirming that he never looked to an apostle, nor did he ever think of, that he needed their delegated authority, let alone their approval. In fact, he'll say in chapter 2, you know, it's those in Jerusalem, they think they're somewhat, they're nothing to me. <laughs> kind of a cock. Interesting. Men love to please men. Men love to be in favor with those who they believe are in greater authority than them. So they drop names. They, they hang out. Wow. Notice still in 17, the method of God was dependency on God. Alone. Listen to the words. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. The apostle Paul went promptly from Damascus to Arabia, the region between the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf and the Euphrates River, exactly where we do not know the region. Some believe it was at Sinai where Moses and Elijah went, but there's no evidence in the text or anywhere else in the New Testament. The training of personal discipleship for Paul was three years equivalent to the time Jesus spent with the 12 apostles when he was on earth. Chapter 18 gives us the three years. I mean, I'm sorry, verse 18 gives us the three years. And the apostle Paul promptly returned to Damascus. The prolonged existence of Damascus is impressive. Damascus is a very old city appearing the first time in Genesis 14, verse 15 and 15 too. It's one of the oldest cities. Damascus was the center of the Amorite in patriarchal times, later became the capital of the Aramean kingdom. Damascus was captured and annexed to Assyria in 732 BC, and in 66 BC, it fell to Rome is the area 
of modern-day Jordan. Amman, Jordan, capital. Damascus is the capital of Syria today. But the way things are going right now, we're not even sure there's a, a, a nation, Syria, <laughs> with all the little Cossacks and all the Chinese and everything that's going on. And so the personal ministry of Paul, notice, began in Damascus. He got saved in Damascus Road. He went to Arabia, and he returned to Damascus. Paul told King Agrippa, listen to what he tells him in um, Acts 26, 19 through 20. He says, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus. Luke tells us Paul immediately preached Christ in the synagogue of Damascus that he was the son of God in Acts 9.20. I mean, he, he didn't have a New Testament. He had just Old Testament scrolls. He has studied them all his life. All of a sudden, it's like reading just jumping off the pages. Could you preach Christ Jesus from the Old Testament? It's all they had. The New Testament interprets the old. The final culmination of Jesus Christ. In Acts 9, 21 through 24, it says, Then all who heard were amazed. Those guys that are hearing people, uh, Paul preached. And they said, Is this not the one who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem? and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased in all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but they, the, their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gate day and night to kill him. Immediately, Paul was the number one persecutor of the church to enemy number one against the Jew. He was too hot to handle. He would expose them. He would confront them. He would preach the gospel to them. They hated him. You remember one day Naaman, the Syrian captain, came to Elisha that he might heal him of his leprosy. Naaman was thinking the prophet would come out to him and call on the name of the Lord and heal him right on the spot, something spectacular. But instead, God's methods were different than Naaman thought. His servant Gehazi came out and said, hey, listen, go dip yourself seven times in Jordan. Name goes, aren't there better rivers in Damascus, the far, far? This muddy hole? And so he's going back to Syria, all ticked off. His servant said, hey, you've come this far. What's it going to hurt? Go dip yourself seven times, and if you don't get healed, you don't get healed. He goes out there. One, two, three, four, five, six, bam. Clean. 
amazing. You never know God's methods. We expect one thing and he does something else. We're praying about something. But we're expecting God to answer it a certain way. And he's got a completely different way he's going to answer. <laughs> he knows what's best. God is able to save and commission a person all on their own, independent of any formal education or training by other men. Many have been like that. None of us at the beginning had any formal training. It was just from the streets. God raised us up, put church together. Nothing wrong with education. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't get any. But you've got to know whether you, God wants you to go that way or not. Sometimes the education robs God's glory because people want to bolster their education. As I tell people, get all the education you can. When you get done, get over it. Don't wear it. Use it, but that's not the important thing. But if God does choose to do that work in a person, that person will not be preaching contrary to the gospel. God will prepare him. Galatians 1, 6 through 9, Paul says, anathema to anybody who preaches any of the gospel. A person has the mind of Christ, the word of God, the Holy Spirit. Those are the essentials for spiritual growth, development, maturity. Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 through 16, and other places. Now the problem is that people think they're calling commission and they're really not and they get off the wall and they start teaching heresy. But again, the plumb line is the word of God, right? So you always judge the man by what he's preaching, what he's teaching. You should be doing your homework on my homework. You should be checking what I say. Very important. God does not require any human approval of you by a prominent preacher of the day. There are people in this ministry that just, this church, they just get up and they go do ministry and in, in Mexico or wherever they go. And they come back and they say, hey, we just were done. We did the whole thing. Oh, great. They don't ask us permission. If God has told them to go, go. It's great. Love it. Do what God has told you to do, not what man says you should be doing. Don't always be looking to man for directions and approval. Let God guide you and open the doors of confirmation and the word of God as he leads you. Don't ignore the warning or admonitions of other Christians, though, if they show you that you're a little bit unbiblical. It's contrary to what the word says. You have to examine that also. Do all things as unto the Lord, who sees all things, and be faithful in the small things. Don't despise them. Galatians 2.6 says, but from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, talking about the apostles, it makes no difference to me. God shows um, personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something add nothing to me. I love it. <laughs> Paul wasn't impressed. Listen, once you meet Jesus, it's hard for men to impress you. Very hard. God desires you to depend 100% on him, spending time with him, 
in the word and prayer, fulfilling your ministry that he has called you to in the church, confidently trusting in Jesus, his word, prayer, the Holy Spirit, your spiritual gifts, your spiritual service. He's the one that will direct and guide you. Listen to Paul in Romans 12, 3 through 5. Paul told the Romans, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. We need one another. We affect one another. We're tied together by Christ Jesus. And so the commission of Paul was according to the methods of God. And he lays out this testimony to those that are being deceived. He presented the evidence of his apostolic commission by God alone. Evidence of these three truths. The commission of Paul was according to the sovereignty of God. The commission of Paul was according to the purpose of God. And the commission of Paul was according to the methods of God. And God always does that. He's sovereign. He knows exactly what's best for your life and mine. But remember, the pain of obedience is nothing compared to the pain of disobedience. The pain of obedience is temporal. The pain of disobedience sometimes is for life even though we're saved. So you walk with God. Lord, thank you for your love, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. We praise you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace over our life. Thank you for every person here, Lord, and those over the internet. We pray, Lord, you would just make yourself known to them, Lord, if they don't know you. They would call on your name and repent of their sins. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. If you believe that Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins, and rose from the dead, you can be saved. He will forgive you of all your sins and make a new creature of you by grace through faith. A simple prayer of repentance is what God requires if you truly believe what you've heard. This is your prayer to him, not to us. He's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with the Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.